John chapter 6. John chapter 6. This will be the fourth sermon on John chapter 6. And I trust by now you're beginning to get a handle on John 6. Uh, if not, let, let me give you a little help. There are three parts to John 6. The sign, the storm, and the sermon. The sign, of course, was the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000 in verses 1 through 15. And then you have the storm uh, when Jesus walked on the water in verses 16 to 21. And then the sermon in verses 22 to 71. It's a sermon in the form of a discourse that Jesus has. But nonetheless, it really is a sermon, much truth that he proclaims to us in this sermon. So the way that these three parts are related is that when Jesus performed the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, he did that to display to the crowd and to his disciples his glory, that he was God in human flesh, and it went over their heads. They missed it. The disciples missed it. The crowd missed it. They missed the truth that Jesus was trying to show them in the feeding of the 5,000. And so Jesus uses another teaching method in the storm with his disciples to show them the same truth. And now in the sermon, he's going to tell us the truth that they missed in, this, in the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Now this is the truth, if I were to put it into one sentence, that they missed that Jesus did not come to give bread, he is the bread. He is our satisfying treasure, just like our bodies hunger for food, our souls hunger for Jesus Christ, and he himself is the bread. Not the blessings he gives, not the things he gives us, Jesus himself, he is the one who truly satisfies our souls. And that's what eternal life is. It's a life of total joy, satisfaction in Jesus Christ. And that's what he came to give. So if you have that basic understanding, you have an idea of the chapter. That's what it's about. Now, last time we began looking at this incredible sermon that started in verse 22 and goes through the end of the chapter. I've titled the Sermon of Jesus, The True Bread from Heaven, from verse 32. Verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 32 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Moses has not given you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. And of course, we know from later that he's talking about himself, the true bread from heaven. So there's a lot of different ways you could divide up this sermon, this discourse. You could divide it up into the people that Jesus is talking to. So he's first, in this first part, um, talking to the crowd. Okay, then he's going to talk to the leaders of the Jews, the Jews, the Pharisees, and the scribes. Then he's going to talk to some would-be disciples would be in the sense that they would be disciples, they could have Jesus on their terms. And then at the end of the chapter, he'll talk to his disciples, the 12. But I prefer to divide up this sermon into um, 
the three things that Jesus is really emphasizing and the three truths that run through all of these conversations that Jesus has with these different people um, are three gifts that the Father, God the Father, gives. And so I've divided up the sermon into three parts. Uh, last time we looked at verses 22 to 36, the gift, the first gift of the Father. And so you'll notice that I've used a lot of creativity to come up with these three points. Gift one, gift two, and gift three. So the first gift of the Father, 37 to 40, is the second gift of the Father, and 41 to 71, the third gift of the Father. Now remember that I'm not talking about chronologic order when I say first, second, and third. I'm just talking about the order in which they appear in the passage. Last time we made it through verse 36 as we looked at the first gift of the Father. Tonight I want to pick up in verse 37 and look at the second gift of the Father. These are verses 37 to 40 are incredible verses. So we sang earlier about the Word of God being a firm foundation. For me, these verses are that. They're some of the most important, glorious, bedrock, foundational, foundational truths for my faith. You may remember, if you were here when I started John 6, I made the statement that John 6 is a life-changing chapter and it's a theology-changing chapter. And the heart of what I was talking about was these verses that we're about to look at. They have been that for me. And so I, I, I come to these verses with a good deal of excitement, but also a, a lot of um, and feelings of inadequacy to be able to expound them. So I, I share some of my feelings with Russ and with Ruth, and I got two pieces of advice. <laughs> Russ said to take my time, and Ruth said to just preach from my heart. So I'm going to try to do those two things. That means I have no idea how long this sermon's going to take, but don't worry, I don't think Russ meant to take all the time that I would need tonight. So, I don't know how long this sermon will take. There are 14 points that I'm going to give you about this second gift. We'll start with one and go as far as we can, but there's 14 points, 14 glorious biblical truths about the second gift. So let's read the verses, verses 37 to 40. I'll be reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. It's updated the New American Standard Bible. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. I mean, all I can say to those verses is, wow. I mean, that is nothing less than a truth bomb from the eternal word from Jesus Christ, the Logos. So I want to start by asking the question, why 
that Jesus dropped this truth bomb on this crowd at this point in the conversation? And why did the Holy Spirit inspire John to preserve it for us? Now, I'm going to come back to that question a lot as we go through the points, but at the beginning, I want you to see at least the general answer from the context of why he says this at this point. So we're going to remind ourselves of the context. Remember that the crowd the previous day had witnessed the incredible, incredible miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. They had been at a desolate place on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, they had been with Jesus all day long, listening to him teach, watching him heal. And it was the, at the end of the day, they were tired, they were hungry, and there was no food in sight except for a lad's lunch, five biscuits and two fish. I'm sure that he didn't have in his Superman lunch pail, you know, five big loaves of bread and a couple of 20-pound groupers. He had a lad's lunch, five biscuits and a couple pieces of fish. And with that, Jesus fed 5,000. Now, this is the point that these people somehow saw this miracle happen. I don't know how they saw it, but they knew that something happened. So I think that the miracle happened in their hands. It happened somehow with the disciples. I mean, Jesus had to give them each the 12, you know, a piece of bread and a piece of fish, and they had to distribute that amongst 5,000. So each of those people would have gotten a piece and start eating it. And it was somehow, it was like the widow's jar of oil in the Old Testament that never was empty. Until they were full, they were able to keep eating. So they knew something happened because what happened at the end? They wanted to make Jesus king. They knew that this was a miracle. Of course, they wanted it all for the wrong reasons. And so Jesus, that evening, dismisses the crowd. He sends the disciples in a boat. And he goes up on the mountain by himself to pray. And during the night... The, G, the Jesus and the disciples under the cover of darkness make it to the other side, to the east side, to Capernaum. And so unbeknownst to the crowd the next morning, Jesus is not on the west side of the Sea of Galilee anymore. And we're going to pick it up there in verse 22. So John 6, 22. On the next day, the crowd which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other small boats came from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread, and after the Lord had given thanks. And when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? I'm amazed that they asked that question. What would you have asked? Yeah, how did you get here? And they didn't, they know there was no boat. The disciples took off with the boat, but no, they say, when did you get here? Because they have something else on their mind. Jesus answered and said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs. If they had said how, it may have been because they understood the sign, but they said they're after food, right? They're thinking on the physical level, but because you ate 
of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father God set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What should we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? Now, that also is amazing that they would say that because they just saw it. They saw it in their very hands, all right? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it was written, he gave them bread to eat from heaven. So you see what they're thinking. The manna didn't just happen one time, right? It happened for how long? 40 years, six days a week for 40 years. So, you know, Moses did that. What are you going to do? Jesus said, verse 32, said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Moses has not given you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said, I, and here's the first gift that we looked at last time, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. This first gift that the Father gives, that it says in verse 32, is Jesus, the bread of life. Those who come and believe have eternal life. Just think about the scene. Okay, this is a group of people who just saw the God-man, Jesus Christ, feed 5,000 with some bread and fish. There are a crowd of people who have just heard the most amazing offer from Jesus Christ himself. And yeah, they're looking at their watch. They're thinking, I'm hungry. What's for lunch? So Jesus says to them, But I said to you that you have seen me, but you do not believe. And that's where we ended. So it's a bad place to end, right? Because we said that we're really no better than them, right? We can't look back and say, uh, no. We're all, we ended by saying we're all in the same boat. We're all blind. We're all deaf. We're all spiritually dead, without hope, dead in sin. We're all the same. We would have done the same thing. We would not believe. We do not believe. We cannot believe. We read last time as we looked a little further in the passage. Not only do we love our sin and therefore hate the Lord, but we do not have the ability, spiritual ability, because we're dead in sin. And into that depressing, harsh reality, Jesus says, verse 37, all that the Father gives to me will come.
So why did Jesus drop that truth bomb then? The general answer from the context is you will never understand the first gift of the gift of people or the gift of Jesus to people until you understand the second gift of the Father. Okay, it's a very important statement. You'll never understand the first gift, the gift of Jesus to people, to sinful people like you and me, unless you understand the second gift of the Father. Because if you just look at the first gift, it ends in what? It ends in failure, doesn't it? Nobody believes. So I want us to dig into the second gift of the Father, and it will shed light on the first gift that we looked at. So what I want to do is I just want to, I'm going to give you 14 points about the second gift of the Father, and I want you to just see them for yourself. I'm not going to try to deduct things from the passage. I just want you to see what Jesus says about this gift. It's going to state what Jesus says about this gift, very simply. Right now, to get us started, I got to give you the first four kind of rapid fire to get you to understand what this first, this second gift is, what this gift is. So look at the text, because I want you to see what Jesus says. Look at verse 37, and do you see that this is a paternal gift? Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come. The Father, we're talking about who? God the Father. Who's the me in the passage? All that the Father gives me. Jesus is speaking. All right, and if you look back in the context, just read chapter 5. We don't have time tonight, but you'll see that he's talking about himself as the Son of God. The Son of God. So... This is a paternal gift of the highest order, a gift from God the Father to God the Son. Now, I'm sure you give a lot of gifts, but I'm sure that if you have kids, there's no gift that measures up to the gift that you give to your children. I mean, you better not mess with the gift that I give to Joy or to Caleb or to Becca. You do whatever you want with the other gifts, but if I give them a gift, I've thought it comes from my heart, from a relationship. And this is the paternal gift of the highest magnitude from God the Father to God the Son. Point number two. This gift, look at the text and see that this gift is people. All right? When Jesus says all, who is he referring to? What is he referring to? All what? He's talking about people, right? He is, all right? What do these people do? Or what, what do this all do? Well, they come, okay? And we know that that means that they believe, all right? Um, they are given eternal life. You'll see later in the passage that they're going to be raised at the last day. What's he talking about? He's talking about people, talking about people. So it's a paternal gift, and it's a gift of people, all right? People like what people? There's only one kind. We're all in the same boat. Sinners. All right. Number three, I want you to see that this gift of people is a pre-creation gift. Now, you're going to have to watch 
the, the uh, tenses that Jesus uses. In verse 37, he says, all that the Father gives me will come. That is present tense. Okay, if you just take that verse alone by itself, you might come to the conclusion, and some do, that when we come, that's when we're given. In other words, when we believe, that's when we're given. But that's not what it's saying, because read on. For I've come down from heaven to do the will of my Father, the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of him that sent me, has sent me, that I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who sees and believes has eternal life. So that second time that he refers to those who, uh, who are given, when he refers to this gift, in verse 39, now this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, right? What tense is that one in? It's in the perfect tense, okay? Perfect tense is referring to something that happened in the past, the results of which continue on and on and on, okay? So it's not talking just about something present, but something that happened in the past that continues on and on and on, all right? So how far in the past are you going to go? Well, if you look at verse 38, he says, Jesus says, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, referring back to the will of God, referring back to this gift that the Father gave him. All right, so when he became incarnate, when he became a man, he came because of that gift. So that gift had to precede his incarnation. All right. When was the incarnation promised even? Genesis 3.15, right? First promise of Jesus that the seed of the woman would come to undo the curse. So this promise is before Genesis. It's an eternity past. Okay, we're going to turn later to this passage, but for now, just listen to this is John 17:24. In John 17:24, he refers a lot to this gift of people that God has given, that the Father's given him. And in verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, okay, referring perfect tense, something happened in the past, continues on, that they may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me when? before the foundation of the world. This gift of love that the Father gave to the Son happened in eternity past. Okay, what did we read in Ephesians? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him when? Before the foundation of the world. So this is a pre-creation gift. So the perfect tense is the perfect tense to describe this gift because it's something that God gave Jesus in eternity past and now he's bringing that to fruition, to completion, and he's going to keep doing it until we all stand with Jesus in glory. Then the gift will be complete and Jesus, Hebrews 2.13, will say, according to Hebrews 2.13, will say, Behold, I and the children 
that God has given me. It's a pre-curation gift. Sort of getting off the subject, but then this will come later, but I, I can't resist saying it now. If it's a pre-creation gift, did he consult us? If it's a pre-creation gift, did he look into future to see who would come and believe? No, he didn't have to because he knew everything. He knew that we would never do that because we were dead in sin. He chose us out of just pure grace, pure mercy, out of love for his son. Number four, this gift, and this is a very, very important one. This gift is the precursor. Now, if I weren't trying to use all P's for my points, I would use fountainhead. Meaning that this is the genesis, this is the beginning, this is the fountainhead of everything that Jesus does for you and me. It's where it all started. Everything flows from this. Okay, look at verse 38 again. For I have come down. Why did I come down from heaven? To do the will of him who sent me. And he's in this context referring back to that gift that was given to him in eternity past. That gift that was given is the fountainhead of all of redemptive history. Everything flows from that. That's why it's so important that you've got to understand this gift in order to understand the gift of Jesus coming down from heaven as the bread of life for sinners. Because it all started there at this gift. Now put those four points together and you have this, something like this, in eternity past, God the Father, in love for his Son, chose a people and gave them to his Son, this gift being the fountainhead of redemption. That's amazing. This is truly, truly foundational because this is where it all started. So what we have in these verses, it is an amazing account. I say amazing because it's from Jesus' lips himself of what Hebrews 13.20 calls the eternal covenant of redemption. Jesus himself was there. He was the recipient of this gift. And he is describing to us in these verses, he's telling us what happened. You know, we're blessed here at Bethel for a lot of reasons. One reason that we are is because you hear preach from this pulpit consistently about the eternal covenant of redemption, don't you? Do you know that I went to church my whole life, I mean my whole growing up, I went to church and never heard one sermon Never heard anything about this. All I heard about was the gift of Jesus to me, okay? So I went to church for 18 years. Uh, I went Sunday school, Sunday morning worship, evening worship, Wednesday. Not once did I hear about this. 
until I was in college. For 18 years, I went without it. So it really does mess up your theology a bit when all you hear is about the first gift that we talked about. For me, it changed everything to know that I belong to Jesus. I was gifted to him from the Father. It had nothing to do with my goodness or anything. In eternity past, I was given to Jesus. I belong to Jesus. The first thought of me was a gift to Jesus. I was born because I belonged to Jesus. All right? I was saved because I belonged to Jesus. Jesus is going to come back for me because I belong to Jesus. That's where it all, that's the fountainhead of it all. So I think last time I shared a little bit of my testimony with you that um, when I was 12, I think it was, I was at a Bible study that I didn't want to be at, uh, you know, with kids I didn't want to be with, listening to a teacher I didn't want to listen to. And that night, God opened my eyes and I came. You know what was happening that night? God was fulfilling what he promised to Jesus in eternity past. He was giving me to Jesus. So, what about my free will? I didn't have any free will. I was in bondage to sin. I was a slave. I had no free will. I came because Jesus loosed me from my chains. He freed me from my bondage. And that night for the first time, he opened my eyes to see the beauty of Jesus. And he opened my ears to see the greatness of what he had done for me on the cross. And I came because I wanted to. It was the first free thing I did in my life. because he freed me from those chains. And it was because of this gift to the Father, this gift from the Father to the Son. And I can't overstate the importance of this gift, okay? I mean, really, you will never understand Jesus unless you understand this gift. Jesus... God's son became man because of this gift. Jesus lived a perfect life because of this gift. Jesus died on the cross because of this gift. Jesus rose again because of this gift. He's exalted because of this gift. He's coming back because of this gift. This gift of the Father and love Giving this gift to his son is the fountainhead of it all. And in our context, that's exactly what Jesus is saying. So let me put it to you a couple of different ways, all right? We will never understand the first gift, the bread of life, until we understand this gift, the gift of the Father, the gift of this gift of the Father to the Son. If you want to understand 
the Father's gift of Jesus to people, you've got to understand the Father's gift of a people to Jesus. I'll say it hopefully reverently, carefully, but you will never understand for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life until you understand that for God so loved his only son that he gave him a people to be with him forever. Now, I'm not diminishing, I don't think at all, God's love for us when I say that. I'm just saying that if we reduce salvation to God so loved me, then we've missed the bigger picture. I'm actually, I think, saying that God loves us more than we could ever know from just the first gift. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, this doesn't measure up, but I give you the idea. So when, when Joy was a little girl, Ruth and I <laughs> got her a doll. And because we loved her so much, we got her a really good doll. Okay, it was one of those American girls. I think it was Kirsten. All right. And at the time, that was a lot of money for us. You know, we, I mean, so we cared about this doll, you know. Um, so look, I never, when I was growing up, played with dolls, all right? Never touched a doll. But Kirsten, I brushed her hair, I changed her clothes, I put shoes on her feet. I mean, a lot of times. And Joy loved Kirsten so much that Eventually, she started falling apart. Okay, so I think, I don't know, one of her limbs fell off. Leg, arm, I forget what. So I actually sent Kirsten to a doll, the doll hospital. Probably would have been cheaper to buy her a new Kirsten. You see the point I'm making? My love for joy is what transferred to the doll. I, uh, okay, I would have loved the doll. I mean, you know, cared for the doll because I paid a lot of money for the doll, whatever. But because I love joy, I love that doll. And in the same way, what I'm saying is that God loves us more than we can ever imagine because he loves us with the same love that he loves his son. An infinite, eternal, unchangeable, sovereign love. Again, John 17, Jesus was going to say this. He, he's, he's praying again for these people that God has given to him. And he says, And I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and that you love them even as you loved me. There it is. He loves us like he loves his son. There's no greater love than that. In fact, turn to John 17. All right, we're running out of time already. Okay, I'm not, I want you to see in John 17 that I'm not taking a, a 
it's just a kind of a side comment that Jesus made. He refers to this again and again, and you can see that this is the motivating force of his life. So John 17, you know the context. Jesus is facing the cross. He's just told his disciples that it's time for them to be scattered, and he's going to go to the cross alone. And so he goes and he prays to his father, and this is what he's praying. He says, verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, even as you have given him authority over all flesh, that to all... Who's it say? All whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Okay, skip down. We don't have time to read the whole thing, but skip down to verse 9. Or verse 6. It goes to 6. I have manifested your name to the men that you have given me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Verse 9, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me. They are yours, and all things are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. Do you see what's on his mind? It's, it's us. Well, you know. Look down at verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone. Okay, so he's been thinking mostly of his 12 up to this point. Now he's going to think about us, that we're also given to Jesus. All right? I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, and they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. That last verse, that verse 24, is just incredible. And I mean, it, it, it gives you the whole thing, that we're given to Jesus, and we're going to be with Jesus forever to see his glory. So if you are a believer tonight, just like me, you are given to Jesus. You belong to Jesus. Now, if you're good Reformed people, you know that the hymn that we sang, Christ, Our Hope in Life and Death, you would have recognized that that came from the Heidelberg Catechism of 1563, right? You knew that, right? You thought of that when we sang it. It comes from the first question. Uh, and... Um, this is a great catechism, anyway, especially the first two questions. But this first question is where the song came from. It, said, it asks the question first, what is your only comfort in life and death? Good question, isn't it? What's your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own. 
that I am not my own, but belong body and soul and life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things work together for my salvation because I belong to him. To him, Christ, by the Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. I love that statement. We belong to him. That changes everything, right? I've said it, but I'll say it again. We'll never understand Jesus, his incarnation, his life, his death, the cross, the resurrection, his second coming, heaven, until we understand this gift of the Father to the Son. We'll never understand ourselves unless we understand this gift, the Father to the Son, because that means we exist for him. We live and we breathe and we move in him for his glory, to the praise of his glory, for his pleasure. We'll never properly understand the Bible unless you understand this first gift. The Bible is not just a collection of 66 books that tell us about some things that God has done for us that we can cash in on if and when we want, but it's a, a record, a revelation of what God is doing to fulfill his gift to the Son, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, the progressive revelation of the history of redemption, God fulfilling the promise to his Son. You'll never understand worship unless you understand this first, this gift of the Father to the Son. I mean, why has our culture, our Christian culture, made worship such a man-centered thing, right? You know, we got traditional and contemporary and whatever and whatever. It's because we don't know anything about the eternal covenant of redemption that we belong to him, not the other way around. As we, we want to come to worship thinking about what do I like, what do I want? It's not, it's about him. We exist for him. It sort of remind, reminds me of Joy's dog Evie. You know, when uh, when somebody comes to the door, she goes running to the door. Well, when I come to the door at home and I open the door, of course, she comes running because she hears the door open. And as soon as she gets close enough to see that it's me, she turns around and runs to the pile of her toys and brings a toy to me to play with her as though I exist for her. It's 
Let me leave you in closing with four points of application, all right? This truth should fill us with humility, right? It's not about us, it's about him. We're not talking about a man-centered gospel. We're not talking about a man-centered salvation. We're from him, we're for him, we're to him. Should fill us with humility. We're just unworthy recipients. The truth, secondly, should fill us with gratitude, right? We deserve none of it. It was all just pure grace, pure mercy, pure love, the same love that he has for his son, that he chose us and gave us to his son. So, do you know what the second question of that Heidelberg, the catechism is? Remember? What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Okay, so remember the first question, what's your only comfort in life and death that I belong body and soul to my Savior, Jesus Christ? Well, what do you need to know to live in the joy of that? I like the way that question is stated. Three things, it says. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from my sins and misery. And third, how I'm to thank God for such a deliverance. We should be every day most thankful people, right? Paul says, always giving thanks in all things. That's because of that gift. Third, and am I on third? third, third three, I think. Third is uh, this truth should fill me with assurance. My salvation is grounded in the gift of the Father to the Son. Not grounded in anything about me, nothing that I do, nothing that I am. It's all I'm gifted to his Son. So Jesus will tell the Jews who come to him in chapter, John chapter 10 and ask him, you know, are you really the Christ? Don't keep us in suspense any longer. Tell us plainly. Jesus says to them, I told you and you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We are eternally, completely secure in Jesus. Fourth, this truth should fill us with worship, right? What else can we do but fall down and worship the Father and the Son for being included in this incredible gift? I exist for him. My greatest joy is giving him glory and giving him the praise that's due his name. So you put those four together, all right? Humility, gratitude, assurance, and worship. Put those four together, I think you get joy. I think that's the joy of heaven. I think the joy, the joy that we can have now. Jesus said, 
these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Okay, so we've just barely begun to get into the covenant of redemption, the eternal covenant of redemption here from the lips of Jesus. So we'll look at more next time. Let's pray. O sing hallelujah, our hope springs eternal. O sing hallelujah, now and ever we confess Christ our hope in life and death. So Father, we praise you this evening that we are not our own, but we belong body and soul and life and death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.